Hello everybody, I'm Dan Kurtzke, and this time around we're going to be looking at issue number 7 of Green Lantern Mosaic, the Jon Stewart solo series from the early 90s. The creative team on this is still Gerard Jones as writer and Cully Hamner as artist. Uh, in this issue, one of the one of the tribes on Oa has been engaging in what they call a ghost dance. A ceremony of dancing and drumming that goes on all night, every night, for about two straight weeks. And it's been driving other factions on the Mosaic absolutely nuts. Namely, the clergy birds. They're this race of, I'll say, just cartoony enough birds about the size of, of a really comfortable armchair who think that... You know, what we know of as life is nothing but basically the pregame for the real in Arabani's life that we'll all transcend into when it's our time. So they basically ignore the world in favor of 24-7 meditation. I really don't think they even give a shit that they're on the mosaic. <laughs> but the constant drumming is making it hard for them to concentrate, which is annoying enough, but there's also the problem of the glad girls murdering random clergy birds just kind of sporadically here and there. You remember the glad girls, right? They're, I don't know if they got names the first time around, but they're the pink-skinned, knife-wielding little girls who hacked John to pieces back in issue one of this book. So the clergy birds and the Crow Ridge Indian Preservation begin to have this this heated confrontation with each other. It really quickly devolves down into your spirituality is messing with my spirituality. But those children from issue four that John gave the rings to, I'm just going to call them the Mosaic Kids, just because that's easier. They see all this and bring John in, and he, he swiftly smacks down both sides for starting to open up it's a Pandora's box of religious fighting. That that might have been a pun. I don't even know. Anyway, uh, then he's off to find the glad he's off to find the glad girls and stop the murder. What's interesting here? And I stress interesting. We get an explanation that what the glad girls usually do is they actually use psychic knives so they can make their playmates and everybody's genuinely feel the pain and suffering that goes along with being gutted and dismembered, all the while leaving them in perfectly fine physical shape so they can do it again later. They don't, they're not going to kill them. They can just they can play some other time. And this is what they did to John in issue one. And I really don't think I like that. It, it seems like an almost unnecessary cheat. You know, it. I think it takes some of the weight away from that whole scene. It, I mean, okay, even though John does confirm right here that I was right about thinking that he allowed it to happen because he feels he deserves it, or worse, I don't know. But anyway, so, I mean, John's back. He's at that sea of tendril-like plant life that's behind that, chair, that awesome chair made of faces he's at on the beginning of issue one. And he's looking for the glad girls, but all of a sudden... He just stops. And we get the best page turn reveal of all time. 
a spontaneous full page 12 panel scene of John Stewart breaking into dance. <laughs> Seriously. It, it turns out the problem is that there's another force out there in the air that's getting into everybody's heads and making them react in strange, sometimes violent ways. It's why the Crow Ridge Indians can't stop their drumming. It's driving the Glad Girls to commit real murder. It's making John do his best impression of Peter Parker in Spider-Man 3. But at the same time, there's no detectable sentient life in this patch of land that John can scan for. Which is weird, because the old-timers supposedly only brought chunks of civilizations to Mosaic. In fact, John tries to dredge up some of the old-timers' memories that he's been suppressing to try and find the answer to all this, but again, the full knowledge of a guardian is too much for a human mind to handle. So that doesn't go very, very well. <laughs> um, so John goes back to the outer edge of the reeds, and he tries an, an awesome experiment. You know, it's, it's it's really simple, too. He, he whistles into the air the first part of row, row, row your boat. And then in his head, he waits, and in his head, he can hear the same music as before, only less intense this time. It was, it's not making him dance uncontrollably this time. Um, you know, he gives a little more of the song. You know, he, he even says here he's showing that there is a pattern and a mind behind what he's doing. And eventually he can feel that strange music in his mind, connecting to him telepathically, reading the thoughts he has pertaining to the song, learning what the lyrics are and what a boat is. This is a living alien life form of sentient sound. John immediately starts calling them the Tone Men, which I love how flippant he is about some of this stuff. What's really awesome is the way John and the Tone Men communicate, as it's 100% conceptual. John hums songs with lyrics that fit the basic concept of what he wants to get across, and the Tone Men use that as a bridge to John's own thoughts that are connected to those meanings. Seriously, play that back and listen to it again. It makes sense. And because they're telepathic, when the Tone Men reply, John hears in his head songs that he already knew whose lyrics let the tone men communicate back to him in the exact same way. This is fantastic. It, um, if you've ever seen that episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Picard and that alien are stranded on a planet together and the only way they can communicate is by using stories as examples or it's a matter of one teaching the other the context of those stories... This is basically the same thing, only here you can dance to it. <laughs> See, like everybody else in the mosaic, the tone men feel cut off from their home. But for them it's even worse, as they can't even really interact with the rest of Oa's new population, as nobody even knows they're there. So they tried to reach out, and it had disastrous results. John explains to them that someday soon they'll be able to commune with others, but it's too big a step to take just yet. What I love about this issue is you can strip it down to a very literal single point, and it's this. The mosaic has a harmony just below the surface that's just waiting to come out, but the population isn't ready for that yet. It's an elegant way to put forth the theme and the promise of what John's trying to accomplish on Oa, and it leaves you with hope for the future. And I also, I like the fact that the Mosaic kids are being brought into it, but I think, 
I like even more that they're being used sparingly. You know, here they didn't feel like main characters, but they also felt important. They're John's eyes and ears across the mosaic, preventing fights when they can, calling for backup when they can't, and they're waiting in the wings to pull John's butt out of the fire if it comes to that. He refers to them as my kids, which I think may speak to the way he continues to build a surrogate family for himself here. Plus, at the same time, it's like it's like he's sown the seeds of his own Green Lantern core in the making. I kind of get the similar feeling from them as I got when I thought for half a page that Chip might stick around for a while. So before we get to anything else, I've got a voicemail here. What's funny about this one is that it came in about a day after I finished up and sent off the last episode that had all of the other feedback about issue two. But, you know, feedback's the one pitfall of recording in advance, but it works out. Hey, I was uh, commenting on uh, Mosaic number two and a uh, couple things. Uh, first item is that uh, Chip and himself although a weird character, really was not as strange as the fly, which is uh, buzzed. Um, and overall, I think that the idea that, uh, you know, the um, the world that exists, or at least the, your take on the internet at the time of 92 was probably not, is not accurate enough, uh, because I know that universities at the time, just to give you a range, I'm late 30s, uh, at the university at the time, all had access to it. So anyone of any kind of higher education, and I'm assuming writers as well, would have had the ability to go ahead and understand that it was already starting to happen. These these uh, little pockets of knowledge you'd go out and you'd have to uh, FTP to. Because um, it was just on the heels of the ARCnet, and they were barely starting to come out with computer science class, and everything had a boot disk. So, and, you know, internet pages were all uh, Unix text, maybe a few images here and there. But for the most part, I mean, I think it's, you're a bit off on it. And as far as Mosaic and recalling it the first time around, um, I breezed through it. And actually, I, I don't think I even own it anymore. But your take on it is very interesting because it brings up other points. But um, I think that there needs to be probably... A, more of a script to kind of keep on target because sometimes the tangents are just like, I have to rewind it. So, uh, constructive criticism, a couple items there, but uh, look forward to hearing the rest of the series. Uh, interesting challenge. Uh, this is Paul. Have a good day. Thanks for calling in, Paul. I don't think there's anybody who couldn't benefit from constructive criticism every now and then, so you know, thank you for that. Um, See, I think with Chip, it's more blatant. You know, while you have Nord and some other anthropomorphic lanterns running around, Chip tends to be drawn like he got yanked right out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Imagine if you went to work one day, and right there in the real world, hanging out with all your real-world people co-workers, was a fully CGI Pixar character. That's kind of how I see Chip's relation to the other lanterns, even the alien ones, which... Also, I think, kind of helps him make sense in Mosaic more so than other places. Um, the internet stuff, that's fair. I have this nebulous idea of the internet really not coming into prominence until a little later. It's certainly nothing like now, though that's not a fair comparison, I know. Uh, 
what's odd to say is that I'm not really a big technology guy, which seems kind of odd considering my hobbies of choice, but there we are. As to the rest, to me, Mosaic isn't really about linear storytelling. It's it's more about the larger ideas and concepts and how they're being shown to us and through whom and why. So that's probably why my thoughts seem a little all over the place sometimes. And also because after getting the feel for the content of this book, I consciously wanted to abandon the kind of review format we use on the Lantern Cast proper and be more loose and conversational with this book. You know, the episodes are a reflection of what's going on through my head as I read the issue and and let it simmer in my mind for a few days before sitting down to do one of these. Um, actually, I actually do keep notes. So some of these things, <laughs> they're just deep as hell, so I want to make sure I don't forget stuff. And I definitely used to, to lean harder on, on uh, I won't say script because I don't do that, but I used to lean harder on notes in the beginning, and that's, I think, a larger part of that is that I just the whole solo podcasting thing. I'm, You guys are hearing this now, but as I record this, I'm basically sitting here talking to nothing and no one. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the equivalent of leaving a really long voicemail somewhere. And and God, just, just picture that. Picture that. Next time you get somebody's answering machine, imagine having to leave a message that lasts 15 minutes to a half an hour. But, you know, hopefully... Hopefully, as these episodes progress, I get less less scatterbrained with my interpretations of this stuff, and it's easier to follow. Um, um, again, thank you for calling in. Now, on to the letters page. The letters page this time around, I don't maybe it's just me, but everyone who writes in seems kind of smug. <laughs> you know, like they've got the whole book figured out. One guy says this might have been a good piece of work if Gerard Jones didn't have to compromise his story to cater to superhero cliches like like a mystery villain and the death of Chip and and the purging of Sinestro. Another guy, this was fine, another guy writes in and goes on a rant about how Jon Stewart is a terrible human being. He actually uses the term rat fink for not outright defying the Guardians and, and taking the captured city's home one person at a time if need be and he finds it repulsive that john's going along with the guardian's experiment seriously this guy even compares it to the way nazi soldiers were just following orders jesus (laughs) this does all prompt an interesting tease from gerard jones though as he makes two separate mentions of the upcoming issue 11 being where we'll get some significant hints as to the larger story at work here and and why certain elements that were complained about in these letters had to happen and not only had to happen but had to be in that order which interests me because in an earlier letters column he had said this series is the most meticulously planned out thing he's ever done at least at this point in his career uh, and considering I feel like I've more or less been reading seven one-shots in a row, I personally can't wait to see where this uber-slow build eventually goes so I can find out what story I've actually been reading. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, something I think I'm going to start doing. I did it last time, just kind of just kind of out of nowhere, and I like, I kind of like it. I, 
uh, every time an episode goes up, I post a talkback thread for that specific issue on thecomicforums.com in the Landergast section. And that's everybody starts, like, with, with the death of Chip, the episode about issue two of Mosaic, everybody commented on issue two of Mosaic. And, and when the letters page in the comic itself reflected feedback on issue two, I, I read a forum comment on issue two that I thought really stood out to me. And I'm going to do that here too. I think it's interesting because then we get to, to look at the feedback from 1992 and the feedback from 2011 all about the exact exact same material. So that's, I kind of like that. And I'm, I'm going to limit it to the one that jumps at me the most just because that, I don't, I don't want these episodes to be that long, so I'm not going to read entire form threads. Um, but this was posted by JD74, and he says, I don't have all of the issues of this series, but I might have the majority of them. And listening to this issue-by-issue issue rundown of the series makes me want to go back and read, them, and read this again. I want to expand on what your thoughts are about the ending of the issue. And this is, this is the issue where the purging of Sinestro happened. Uh, you say that John feels like there's something missing from the family setting. Something red. I liked your idea that it was Sinestro, because now John has to keep everything together on his own, but I also wonder if the something red he was referring to was Kat Matui. I could see John in this nice family setting, and wishing it was Katma instead of Rose. Just a thought. Can't wait for the next episode, especially when you go over number five of this series. That should be awesome. I hope you thought it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, that's I really like that. I wish I thought of that at the time. I mean, Katma's the same, same uh, race, species, whatever as Sinestro, so they have the same skin tone, so that fits with the something red thing. And and it's it's just like he said the whole the whole deal with like he's in this you know nuclear family scene. But he's still very much a man defined by his failures, his losses. And one of the biggest losses to him is the death of Kat Matui, his wife. It makes me wonder, how how does he look at Rose? How does he look at their relationship? Is it is it just something to ground him in the midst of all this crazy chaotic mess on Mosaic? Does he see her as kind of a surrogate for Katma? And is like if they both move back to Earth right now, would they stay together? Huh. It's interesting. I hope I hope Rose gets some more page time coming up cuz she she was present pretty prominently in that first four issue thing that we did in, issue, in uh, episode zero but she really hasn't been a big part of this series so far and it's it's already seven issues in seven out of 18 we're almost at the halfway point so hopefully we'll get some uh some more insight into her let's see what else we got here we got um daniel monreal who left me a comment via facebook I enjoyed your intro Green Lantern Mosaic episode. I bought that series that originally hit stands. Jon Stewart was my Green Lantern as a child. Look forward to more from you. And, you know, I, this was a conversation I talked back and forth with him. I wanted to know more about his experience within. He replied, you know, I'll admit the majority of the story, as with Crisis on Infinite Earths, 
went over my head at that age, but I really liked the idea of a patchwork planet and the Green Lantern who was pretty much on his own. But you're right, if I reread it now, as an adult, I will probably get way more out of it. Time to start tracking those issues down. And I, I asked him, like, how old was he back then when he read it, and he says I'd have to check the Green Lantern Mosaic release dates, but I think I was around 15 years old. Well, we, we, we think of it as a chore to get kids to read comics in general today. Can you, can you imagine get, trying to get a 15 year old to read this? I mean, I, you know, for all we know, they might find it incredibly interesting to the point that this is their Green Lantern. You know, it seemed to work back in '92, but God, that's that's great. I, if anybody else out there read this, just find me on the internet and just tell me you know, how old were you when you read it and and what did you think of it. I love this stuff. I want to find out about this stuff. Um, okay, I think that's just about everything. I want to note that this spin-off podcast, The Lantern Cast Presents Mosaic, has been nominated for a Noisy Award. It's an annual podcasting awards done by the Comic Book Noise podcast, which you can find over at www.comicbooknoise.com. The nomination is for Favorite New Single Host Comic Book Podcast. Uh, the others in the category are the PKD Media Black Box, Tom vs. Aquaman, Loikamania, and the Wolverine Berserker Podcast. So you you can see the full list of all the categories at www.deliberatenoise.com slash awards. And you can submit votes to Derek at comicbooknoise.com and all votes have to be in by 11.59pm Eastern Time February 28th 2011 so if we're keeping with the schedule this episode should be airing around on or around Friday February 18th so you should have about 10 days left to go vote vote for me or for someone better so okay I think that's all my stuff so you can leave feedback by emailing me at dan at lanterncast.com or the show in general at lanterncast at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page or go to thecomicforums.com under L for Lanterncast or call in at 206-202-1159 and yep, talk to you next time. <laughs>